Hi everyone, welcome back to Daily Gospel Exegesis Podcast. As always, we're all about doing a verse-by-verse exegesis of the Gospel reading from today's Mass, and we have a really interesting one. We're diving into the crucifixion narrative in the Gospel of John, and normally you don't get to hear these crucifixion narratives in small chunks like we do get to today. So, we're looking at John chapter 19, verses 31 to 37. It was preparation day, and to prevent the bodies remaining on the cross during the Sabbath, since that Sabbath was a special day of solemnity, the Jews asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken away. Consequently, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with him, and then of the other. When they came to Jesus, they found he was already dead, and so instead of breaking his legs, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a lance, and immediately there came out blood and water. This is the evidence of the one who saw it, trustworthy evidence, and he knows he speaks the truth, and he gives it so that you may believe as well because all this happened to fulfill the words of Scripture. Not one bone of his will be broken. And again, in another place, Scripture says, they will look on the one whom they have pierced. So that's our reading for today. Let's start by thinking about the context. So Jesus has just died on the cross at about 3 p.m. on Good Friday. And now we get to verse 31. It was preparation day. So, this is the day before the Sabbath. And it's important to remind ourselves how the dating system or the time system works in that culture. So, Jesus dies on a Friday, on Good Friday, and the following day is a Saturday. So, that's when the Sabbath would be. But for them, the Sabbath begins at sunset on Friday. So, as Jesus dies at 3 p.m., it's getting very close to sunset. So, they're starting to get close to the Sabbath. This, of course, is one of the key pieces of evidence which tells us that Jesus was crucified on a Friday. John's Gospel is very clear that the next day is the Sabbath, so that means Jesus must have died on a Friday. And to prevent the bodies remaining on the cross during the Sabbath, since that Sabbath was a day of special solemnity, or you can translate this passage, for that Sabbath was a high day. So here we learn that the Sabbath, in this case is going to be a special feast. And in particular, we know it's part of the Passover week. So the next day, this Saturday, will not only be the normal Sabbath, it's also a special um, Jewish feast associated with the Passover. So it's kind of like an extra special Sabbath feast the next day. So there's three people being crucified there, including Jesus. And the Jewish authorities know it's not going to be appropriate to have the bloody Jewish bodies staying on the cross, particularly dead bodies, on the cross after sunset, because Deuteronomy chapter 21 talks about how you need to take the bodies away and bury them before sunset of the Sabbath. So they're trying to follow the Jewish law here. So they're getting worried that it's getting close to the beginning of the Sabbath. The Jews asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken away. So the Jewish leaders want the whole process to be finished quickly. And we say quickly, but in reality, it looks like the crucifixion started at about 9am. Uh, So, they have actually already been there for quite a while, and now they're wanting to finish up. At this point, two of the three men are alive. Jesus is dead, but the other two men are still alive. A quick way to speed up the death of a crucifixion victim, it's kind of cruel, but it does work, is 
they would get a mallet and break the legs of the person hanging on the cross. If you break the legs of the person on the cross, they can no longer hold themselves up and they can't breathe anymore. So they die very quickly after that. So it's one of the Roman ways of killing people on the cross. So the Romans were basically masters of execution and uh, torture, basically. Now, Pilate, if you think about it, doesn't have to comply with their request. They ask Pilate, can we please kill these people quickly? Now, Pilate, in the position he's in, doesn't have to say yes. He doesn't care about Jewish laws. But in this case, he chooses to allow it because he has to maintain a fine balance of a relationship with the Jewish leaders. If he continually frustrates them, they might rebel against him. So he has to walk a fine line there. Verse 32, Consequently, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man, who had been crucified with him, and then of the other. So those two men are killed by their legs being broken. And if we're understanding Luke's account correctly, one of these men, quite possibly, uh, ended up in paradise at that moment, or at least possibly passed through purgatory, but he was a righteous man, one of these men. Verse 33, When they came to Jesus, they found he was already dead. So Jesus, we know, died earlier because Uh, John's gospel and the other gospels tell us that he gave up his spirit. Why does Jesus die earlier than the other men? Well, one version could be that Jesus voluntarily gave up his life at a certain point, and you can read the text that way. Jesus chooses the moment of his own death. But it could also just be that he's experienced extensive beatings earlier in the day that the others haven't. So it makes sense that he would die first. Verse 34, instead of breaking his legs, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a lance, Or you can translate that spear. So this is a Roman way of confirming if the person is dead on the cross. The idea seems to be that if you pierce someone with a spear in their side and then they react to it or their body convulses, well, then they're still alive. But if their body doesn't convulse, that's a good sign that they're dead. So this is kind of a Roman way of checking or confirming that the person is definitely dead. And immediately there came out blood and water. So this is a very famous passage. When the Roman soldier stabs Jesus in the side, blood and water comes out. So firstly, on a biological level, why does this happen? Well, there is actually a medical explanation for this. Normally, if you stab someone, water is not going to come out. It will just be blood. But if someone dies by crucifixion, due to the trauma that the victim has experienced on their heart and their lungs, in terms of the way the person has had to struggle to breathe and struggle to pump the blood around from the heart, then it's a known medical phenomena that in crucifixions and other similar things, fluid can gather around uh, the heart and the lungs. So it looks like, and most uh, scholars and medical researchers who have looked at this have said that when the soldier pierced Jesus, it ruptured his pericardial sac. And as a result, the fluid buildup came out. So blood and water came out of there. So why does John include this? There's a couple of different reasons. Firstly, John wants to stress that Jesus really is dead. At the time Jesus is writing, there's some interesting controversies happening about was Jesus really human? So it seems that one of the things John is doing here is confirming for his readers Jesus really is dead. There's no other way to explain it. The blood and the water came out. That would only happen if you're dead, basically. So this insistence that Jesus is dead highlights that Jesus really is human and he really did die. If you look at 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, which is written by this same author, 
you can see that pretty early on in the church, they're already having discussions about, was Jesus really human? So John here is contributing to this discussion and in fact, clarifying that Jesus really is human by talking about what happened here at the moment the spear went through him. And of course, this controversy later shows up in the form of Gnosticism. So it was around early on and John in his writings in particular has to combat it. So there's a medical explanation, but there's also heaps of theological implications here about the fact that blood and water uh, come out of Jesus' side. There's been about six or seven strong theological interpretations that have been taken from what happens here. There's different ways the church has understood the theological significance. In fact, they could all be right. There's lots of different things that the blood and the water symbolizes. So I just want to take you through uh, some different ways the blood and water has been interpreted theologically. So firstly, the fact that Jesus' side is is pierced kind of mirrors how Eve is formed from Adam's side. So Adam's bride is formed from Adam's rib. Well, here, Jesus' bride is formed from his own side. So it's like the same part of the body that the bride is formed from. When Jesus offers his life, blood and water pours out, and that, in a sense, gives birth to the church, which is his bride. This is how Jesus wins a bride for himself, by pouring himself out. And of course, uh, so the blood, you could say, represents uh, the price that Jesus paid to purchase his bride, and the water is the method by which people enter the church. They become part of his bride through baptism. So there's a lot of profound significance between uh, paralleling Adam and the way his bride is formed and the way Jesus' bride is formed on the cross. That's quite amazing, actually, when you see that. Secondly, blood and water, and there's a strong tradition of this, blood and water can represent the sacraments particularly. So the blood is taken to represent the Eucharist and water represents baptism. John has already said quite a bit about these two sacraments in his gospel. So in John chapter 3, he talks to Nicodemus about water baptism. John chapter 6, he talks about blood being associated with Jesus' body and the sacrament of the Eucharist. So now we see the culmination of this blood and water imagery coming together. John has deliberately set up these themes early in the gospel and then focused on this passage here. So very strong tradition in the church of associating blood and water with Eucharist and baptism. St. John Chrysostom says, It was not accidentally or by chance that these streams came forth, but because the church has been established from both of these, her members know this since they have come to birth by water and are nourished by flesh and blood. The mysteries, the sacraments, have their source from there, so that when you approach the awesome chalice, you may come as if you were about to drink from his very side. So it's quite profound words there. Another interesting theological interpretation here is the water in particular is seen to be an image of the Holy Spirit being poured out. Jesus earlier in the Gospel of John, uh, particularly in chapter 7, described living water welling up from within himself. He actually used this language of a special supernatural water that exists within his own being. Well, now that water is being poured out and we know that that water is the Holy Spirit. Also, this image of blood and water is one of the most famous images of Jesus' sacred heart. So uh, you've probably seen the icons of the sacred heart of Jesus. The most common picture to represent Jesus' sacred heart is the blood and the water coming out of Jesus' own heart here. So there's a strong tradition of associating the sacred heart here with what happens. Some church fathers, such as Tertullian, they see the water and the blood as signifying two types of Christian baptism. So Christian initiation through water, 
And then blood represents uh, the baptism of death or martyrdom. So that's an interesting interpretation as well. Some also see here a parallel with the rock that was struck by Moses in the wilderness. You might actually see some artwork like this. So that famous scene where Moses strikes the rock in the wilderness and water comes out. Um, there's an elaboration of this in the Aramaic rendition of the uh, the Torah. In the Aramaic version of the Torah, the the text reads slightly differently for that story. It says that when Moses struck the rock, both blood and water gushed forth. Um, that's in Numbers chapter 20, verse 11. And we see that in the Palestinian Targum. Apparently, that was a common Aramaic way of reading that passage. So, Paul, in his own writings in the New Testament, interprets the rock that Moses struck as a symbol of Christ, from which flows the spiritual drink of the Eucharist and the Spirit. So, maybe Jesus being pierced here and producing blood and water is supposed to mirror the rock that was struck by Moses in the wilderness. And also, John himself later elaborates on this theme. In 1 John chapter 5, he says, This is the one who came through water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water alone, but by water and blood. So, John clearly sees this as very important. Verse 35, This is the evidence of one who saw it. Or you can translate this, He who saw it bore witness. So, the Apostle John here stops to assure his readers that it really did happen. There was an, he says there's an eyewitness there who saw it happen. This is the testimony of the one who saw it. Who's the witness that's there? Who is the eyewitness who saw the blood and the water come out? It really does seem that it has to be the beloved disciple. In verse 26, it talks about some people who were at the foot of the cross, and it appears that there's not too many people at the foot of the cross at this point, but one of them is the beloved disciple. Verse 26 specifically says that. So that's the disciple that Jesus uh, gets Mary to look after after he's gone. And this disciple is responsible for looking after Mary. So the woman, behold your son, he's talking about the beloved disciple. So this disciple is at the foot of the cross. If you put all these verses together, it's pretty strong evidence that the author of the Gospel of John, who we think, of course, is the Apostle John, is to be identified with the beloved disciple. He is the one who is at the foot of the cross. Or at the very least, if you think that uh, perhaps John was written by more than one person, there, are, there is a theory that the Gospel of John was maybe written by two different people. At the very least, this verse, whoever wrote this verse, has to have known the b- beloved disciple well. He must have heard the beloved disciple talk about these events. So the author goes on, he says, trustworthy evidence and he knows he speaks the truth. So once again, it looks like John, the author, is speaking about himself in third person. He knows he speaks the truth. John, by the time he writes this gospel, is guided by the Holy Spirit. And John is quite assured that he understands the spiritual meaning of these things. In fact, history seems to tell us that the reason John wrote his gospel... Of course, he wanted to complement the other Gospels and add in information that they didn't have. But also, it seems that people were coming to John and saying to him, please write a spiritual Gospel. And so, John is confident that he is able to get across the spiritual meaning of these things because he is guided by the Holy Spirit, very much so after Jesus' uh, resurrection and ascension. He, He goes on, and he gives it to you so that you may believe as well. So, what's the purpose of John writing? So that others can believe in Jesus. John explicitly says 
That's one of his purposes in writing his gospel. He says that in a couple of places. So that people will believe in Jesus. And for that reason, it has become very popular, even in church history, as the first gospel to start with for introducing people to the person of Jesus. Of course, all four gospels are useful for that purpose. But this one in particular um, is quite beloved as a way of telling people who Jesus really is. So here, John basically says that he wants his audience to know about the blood and the water in order to help them believe. He thinks the fact that the blood and the water come out of Jesus' side is a key thing in helping people believe in Jesus. Verse 36, all this happened to fulfill the words of Scripture. Every single detail of Jesus' death has been predicted in Scripture. It's not just predicted that Jesus will die. It's actually more detailed than that. Pretty much everything that happens on the cross in the last few hours is predicted somewhere in the Old Testament. And John wants his audience to know that Jesus is the fulfillment of those prophecies. And he's going to quote two separate scripture passages here. The first one is this, not one bone of his will be broken. This is a reference to Exodus twelve forty six. This is part of the laws that God gave the Jewish people for the first time they did the Passover. The laws basically said for the first Passover that the lamb you use for the Passover needs to be without blemished. It cannot have a broken bone if you're going to use it as the Passover sacrifice. Jesus, of the theological significance, of course, is that Jesus is the final lamb of God. John's, uh, John the Baptist says that in chapter 1, verse 29. So in order for Jesus to truly be the Passover lamb of God, Jesus has to be unblemished, which means he needs to have not it needs to have no bones broken. So it's quite remarkable how he fulfills that. And also think about it. The original Passover lambs had to be sacrificed and then consumed. Jesus is the final Passover lamb. He, accomplish, he accomplishes our Passover. He saves us from slavery to sin and brings us into the kingdom of God. And that means Jesus is fit to be both sacrificed because he's unblemished and also to be consumed in the Eucharist. There's all these remarkable parallels. If you think about what was the purpose of the Passover lamb, Jesus fulfills all of those in greater, more remarkable ways. And it's even more interesting if you think about it, that none of Jesus' bones were broken during the crucifixion. Statistically and medically, you would expect that a bone would be broken due to all the trauma he experienced. So it seems that God supernaturally prevented any of Jesus' bones from being broken so that these prophecies could be fulfilled. In fact, John here might be quoting from Psalm 34 verse 21, which talks about the righteous person this way. It says, God watches over all of his bones, not one of them shall be broken. So this could be a case of Jesus fulfilling multiple passages from the Old Testament at once. Verse 37, and again, in another place, scripture says, or we can translate this, another scripture says, sometimes people wonder about this. John and sometimes the other New Testament authors don't always tell you which book they're quoting from. They just says somewhere in scripture, it says this. Why does John do that? Why doesn't he name the author of this book of the Bible? Possibly, there's different theories, Possibly it's because John himself doesn't have access to the Old Testament at the time he's writing. So he knows the Old Testament passages. He knows them because he's been taught them as a Jewish person, as a boy. So he he's memorized a lot of the scripture and he can quote it, but he can't always remember what book it's from. So he's confident that it is from scripture, but he just isn't sure which book it's from. 
That would seem to be a normal Jewish way of describing specific passages, because in this culture, in this time period, very few Jews actually had access to the scrolls of the Old Testament themselves. They were usually kept in the synagogue, and people didn't have private copies of, uh, the, of the scrolls, it seems, most of the time anyway. So it looks like John here is remembering that this is indeed an Old Testament passage, but he can't quite place where it is in the Old Testament. That's a possible explanation anyway. And this is the second one he quotes. They will look on the one whom they have pierced. This is from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. It's clearly, in context, a prophecy about the coming Messiah. This whole section of Zechariah is messianic. In context, Zechariah describes a day of mourning for Jerusalem, which will weep with remorse that its sins have pierced the Messiah. But it also goes on in that same passage passage to describe a day of compassion when God opens a fountain to cleanse the city of its iniquities. So if you look at Zechariah 13, it goes on to talk about, even though the Messiah is pierced, God will open up a fountain and cleanse the iniquities of the people. It's quite an interesting book to read, Zechariah, in terms of how specific it is about Jesus and the coming messianic age. This theme of a fountain of life coming forth in the new age is a key theme in many of the, uh, many of the prophets. Now, if you think about it, this is actually fulfilled quite literally in the way Jesus is crucified. They will look on the one whom they have pierced. Literally, that's what happens. Jesus the Messiah is pierced, and then people look upon him as he's pierced. And this is an interesting case of a prophecy that had a more literal fulfillment than the Jews expected. We can think of many messianic prophecies which the Jews probably read over literally, and then Jesus fulfilled them in a more spiritual or non-literal way than they expected. And there's lots of those examples, particularly in terms of Jesus being a military messiah. But here is one of these ones where it goes the other way. It's where Jesus fulfilled it probably more literally than they would have expected. The Jews at the time would not have expected the Messiah to be literally uh, crucified. That would not be part of their conception of the Messiah. But here, Jesus is literally pierced. So it's quite a literal fulfillment of this passage. Now, maybe John here is suggesting by quoting this passage, because he knows Zechariah, and he knows the text of uh, chapter 12 and 13 of Zechariah, maybe John is suggesting that there's a link between the piercing of the Messiah and the opening opening of the fountain of divine mercy. Because in the context of Zechariah, those two things are linked. And maybe John sees that the moment Jesus is pierced and the moment the blood and the water flows out, this is the opening of the fountain of divine mercy. So it's quite an amazing theological uh, thing going on here. And it's certainly the precursor to what we would now call uh, Jesus' sacred heart. So shortly we'll have a look at a couple of catechism references, and there's quite a few quite profound catechism paragraphs here to look at. This is the end of the text for today. From here, the burial of Jesus happens next. So Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus bury Jesus. That's at the end of John chapter 12. That's never actually read as its own passage in a lectionary. So we will cover that as a bonus episode. If you want to hear that next passage... Uh, that next part of the Gospel of John, you can get access to that through the Patreon page, which is in the show notes. But you can hear the start of John chapter 20 on Easter Sunday every year, because that passage is about the resurrection, and it's also read at several other times during the liturgical year as well. So as we turn to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, as you'd expect, there's actually quite a few places where this passage gets talked about, because it's, it's quite a deep statement. 
uh, about particularly about the blood and the water coming out of Jesus' side. So let's have a look at a few of these. Firstly, we have paragraph 641. This is about the resurrection. Mary Magdalene and the holy women who came to finish anointing the body of Jesus, which had been buried in haste because the Sabbath began on the evening of Good Friday, were the first to encounter the risen one. So here we have uh, just a brief reference to the fact that um, Jesus had to be buried in haste and taken down from the cross in haste, as we saw today. Paragraph 478, this is about the heart of the incarnate word. Jesus knew and loved us each and all during his life, his agony and his passion, and he gave himself up for each one of us. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. He has loved us all with a human heart. For this reason, the sacred heart of Jesus, pierced by our sins and for our salvation, is quite rightly considered the chief sign and symbol of that love with which the divine Redeemer continually loves the Eternal Father and all human beings without exception. So there we have a reference to the sacred heart of Jesus. Paragraph 694 is about the Holy Spirit. Water is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. The symbolism of water signifies the Holy Spirit's action in baptism, since after the invocation of the Holy Spirit, it becomes the efficacious sacramental sign of new birth. Just as the gestation of our first birth took place in water, so the baptism of water truly signifies that our birth into the divine life is given to us in the Holy Spirit. As by one spirit we were all baptized, so we are also made to drink of one spirit. Thus the spirit is also personally the living water welling up from Christ crucified as its source and welling up in us to eternal life. So there again, we see that the water that flows out of Jesus' side is the Holy Spirit, and it can well up in us to give us eternal life. Paragraph 1225 is about Jesus' own baptism. The blood and water that flowed from the pierced side of the crucified Jesus are types of baptism in the Eucharist, the sacraments of new life. From then on, it is possible to be born of water and the Spirit in order to enter the kingdom of God. So there we directly see that Catholic teaching is that the blood and the water are types of baptism in the Eucharist. Paragraph 608 is about Jesus, the Lamb of God. After agreeing to baptize him along with the sinners, John the Baptist looked at Jesus and pointed him out as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. By doing so, he reveals that Jesus is at the same time the suffering servant who silently allows himself to be led to the slaughter and who bears the sins of the multitudes, and also the Paschal Lamb, the symbol of Israel's redemption at the first Passover. Christ's whole life expresses his mission, to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paragraph 1432 is about interior penance. God gives us the strength to begin anew. It is in discovering the greatness of God's love that our heart is shaken by the horror and weight of sin and begins to fear offending God by sin and being separated from him. The human heart is converted by looking upon him whom our sins have pierced. Let us fix our eyes on Christ's blood and understand how precious it is to his Father. For, poured out for our salvation, it has brought to the whole world the grace of repentance. So, as you can see here, this passage we've looked at today from John chapter 19 is really quite inexhaustible in terms of its theological and uh, spiritual significance. Thanks for listening today. I hope you've learned something new and will continue in the coming days. 